With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I am here with Deb. And say hello to everybody before we get to the big explanation where the hell we've been. I know. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. We were not lost, but we were wandering. (laughs) Well, between my internet, your internet, my vehicle breaking, trying to get everything settled, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of a nightmare. We're still not all the way there. With everything, like tonight, I am not on the interface because we just got a brand new satellite set up. And for some reason, TalkShoe hates satellite because I could get to any other page on the Internet except TalkShoe. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe it's just too big or something. I don't understand all this. All I know is God bless my, my dinosaur air card because it's still hanging in there and blinking at me, which is a good thing. So I'm okay here. And, uh, you know, the the uh, the, the uh, producer challenged part of the show. <laughs> well, actually, now, from now, you don't have to do anything for the rest of the show. And so that's the only reason I can do this, because if I had to do other things with all these damn buttons I have to click, I wouldn't know what to do. So... Oh my goodness! We're giving a high five to Susan because she does this not only on this show but on her other shows, and I'm amazed at that she does it because I wouldn't be able to. So we're very happy that Susan does this, so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, we've talked about this before that you know people on regular talk radio have uh, people. They have people. Yes, uh, we don't have people. We don't have people. <laughs> We are our people. <laughs> yes. <sighs> so anyway, we're back. And for those of uh, you just tuning in for the first time, this is a historical educational show. It is about women of the American Revolution, uh, the circumstances that survived their lives as much as we can glean from the information that's out there, which uh, some women have both vast amounts of information, some have hardly any information, and some have maybe moderate information. But regardless, when we do get a hold of a woman, we do want to highlight her because she was all, all the women of the revolution were very important, and not only patriot women, but royalist women as well. They helped shape this country. And we're at a crossroads right now in our own present day that is extremely critical. And the only thing that I can think of doing besides taking our states back from the ground up, ground up is knowledge. We have to counter the prods. We have to counter the evil that is in our country, the godlessness, with knowledge because knowledge is power. The progressives that have 
changed the way our country is run right now have used knowledge in our classroom. They've used words against us, and they've changed our history. So the only recourse we have is to bring out the real history, and that's what we do on our show. Deb is very good at research. I wouldn't be able to do the show without her. And we are very uh, careful about the references and the places that we do get history because they have changed it so drastically, correct? Yeah, and and it's amazing how how many sites I'll click on, and um, a lot of them have to do with educating our young people. And the the well, it's not so. It's not even the quality. It's it's the um, what they focus on. You know the the bad the the black moments in our history. You know, and and it's the spinning of it, and, you know, they're, they're, they keep putting out stuff through 21st century, you know, or 20th century um, perspectives, and, and when you go back into history, context is important, and, you know, the definitions of the words from that, you know, time of history is also important. Things change over time, so you can misunderstand, as the progressives are so good at saying, misunderstand, misspeak, miss, miss, miss. And they do miss the actual uh, origins, the whys, the wherefores, the hows, the what, because they have an agenda. So I, I go through a whole lot of sites before I get to one that I recognize as a valid, um, where they use original sources. And uh, you can always go over to archive.gov and you know do a little research on your on your own and find out if what you're reading is really what somebody said or did. And uh, Avalon is also good. So. With that in mind, we do try to give you, you know, as, as best we can, being history, uh, facts from original sources, uh, you know, that God bless the people who have tracked them down and spent the time in dusty rooms and with little rubber gloves on because um, I don't have that, oh, that, oh, God, that would just be, I would never come out. So... I do try to find these people, and uh, the, the and fortunately, our uh, founders and their families were prolific writers. You know, not only in letters but journals, and this is how we found out so much that we have found out. So, you know, praise for the written word here. Um, you know, texts are one thing, but. I'm sorry, letter writing has gone out of fashion. Right. And tonight we are going to highlight Jane Franklin Meekum. Now, the last woman that we did, let me see if I can, I'll get up our little show notes. Oh, and also excuse of my, uh, if my internet goes out or my phone goes out or if there's loud banging going on, it's the weather. <laughs> Having storms roll over. Yesterday we had a 20-minute major hailstorm 
I, we have never seen anything like this. It was marble-sized hail, and you couldn't even talk. I mean, it was so loud, and I couldn't see out the windows because it was so dense. I was like, okay. And you know what? I said to myself, what it happened? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, the last woman we did before we were so rudely interrupted. By life. By life. <laughs> was Deborah Franklin. And Deborah Franklin was Benjamin Franklin's wife. We also did, uh, had highlight, Royalist Kiza Folger Coffin, who is a relative of Benjamin Franklin and Jane, which we're going to highlight today. So in keeping with the, the theme, I decided that we would just go with Franklin and his siblings because his Deborah, his wife, and his sister Jane were very close. Now, when I get into her, it's going to be important because Benjamin Franklin, if you recall, was not in the United States hardly at all. He was overseas more, more than he was here. And not only did Jane have a, was a support for Deborah with his wife, Deborah, his wife, was a support for Jane, his sister. So that's why we wanted to keep him with this, uh, this family uh, thing, which we normally don't do. But I just thought they were so, they were so intertwined, right, Deb, that, that we had to do this. Oh yeah, they uh, um, it's, you know, especially in in their latter years, uh, later years, because uh, you know, during the Revolutionary War, it was hard on so many, and Jane was one that it was hard on, and of course Deborah had to hold down the fort, you know, her homestead and her shop while Benjamin was uh, in England and France, so. Um, they kept, they kept, uh, gosh, the, the list of letters that they have between Benjamin, uh, um, Benjamin and Jane and Jane and Deborah and uh, other family members. You can go to archives.gov and just put in Jane, Jane and uh, Benjamin's name and you'll, you'll see the long list of letters that you can read. We're only going to highlight a few because we'd be here until next week. Reading. So, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, and you know, and it's important too to bring out that the many different roles the women played in the Revolutionary War. Like you're saying, Deborah had to hold down the fort because Benjamin, although he didn't physically fight in the war, he was still doing the war effort abroad, and and we they needed that support. And this particular family was was closer than they, you know, Abigail Adams didn't have any kind of support like that from the family of John. Um, she was pretty much on her own. Uh, she had her family, but it, it wasn't the same thing as we're going to show between Jane, Benjamin, and Deborah. It just it wasn't. And, um, again, these brave women, even, you know, not, not only the women that were stayed behind while the men went off to war, there were so many different things going on in the world and so many support um, efforts that had to be made for us to be recognized by the rest of the world as a country. Yeah, yeah. The men, men, men did. Um, well, it's just like the military. You have the the front line. You have the the uh, the uh, back at the base, and then you have the support in the home country um, when they're deployed. And that's basically how it was for the families 
of those who fought in the Revolutionary War or were, you know, were in the Congress or they were ambassadors or they were, you know, um, out over there working out treaties um, or they're trying to be, you know, they're over there trying to get money to fund the, the war. So their families were left here in the colonies to do the best they could with the war, you know, raging in a lot of their backyards. Um, so, you know, people lost homes, they lost their farms, uh, you know, their husbands were killed, their sons were killed, their brothers were killed. Um, so it, it was it was a trying time. I mean, so, you know, we celebrate the revolution because it gave birth to this country, but you have to remember it was a bloody civil war, neighbor against neighbor, community against community. And then you had the British. <laughs> it, was, it was quite, and the Hessians. Can't forget the Hessians. Good God. So um, it, it was a it was a tumultuous time for many, and people had to do what they had to do to make sure that their family was fed and their businesses were intact. And if they lost their home, they found another one. And this might be while their their men folk were far away. Well. And I'm glad that you brought up the Civil War because we bring this up every uh, show. And also that that people have to remember it was a Civil War because we were British subjects. We were under the crown, all of us. No way was that king here. We're under the crown. We're British subjects. And the fact that they're trying to say that in Europe, because of the refugees, the fuzzy-buzzy refugees that were placed there, are causing a Civil War, is incorrect. So, you know, these talking heads, please, take them with a grain of salt and research stuff. We were all British subjects. That's why it was a civil war. When we had the civil war of the South against the North, we were all American citizens. These people invading Europe are not citizens of that country. No. It, 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 it drives me crazy when they say, oh, it's on the brink of civil war. It's not a civil war. Those people are not citizens. And never mind What's the definition in in the country of origin for these refugees, it's not even a civil war, it's a religious war. It's a holy war. Let's stop with the nonsense about because this. I mean, talk about lazy journalists, which we exactly do a whole it, it's it, you're absolutely right because it's very important. Again, language matters. Meanings of words matter. It is much more serious to have a citizen fight another citizen than it is to have invaders fight people that are already there. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it runs much deeper into the, the makeup of a people than this. That, you know, and that what they're doing is, is the, they're taking something that you never want to see in your lifetime and making it a trivial thing. Yep. And as we explore these ladies, these wonderful women on both sides, we come to find out how serious a civil war really is and how much we really do not want to do it. No. And with that, we are going to start, Jane. 
as always, uh, we go between different sources, and actually we go between different essays, bringing out, try to try to make it into a cohesive um, show. Because, well, again, because it's history and, and Deb brought this out, we got to pick piece for piece and then put it together. So we're going to be going through a bunch of different essays and articles, and hopefully uh, you'll get the big picture. So uh, let's see. Um, which one am I going to start with? All right. This is from Women in America History, 18.blogspot.com. Jane Franklin Meekum, she was born in 1712. Oh, this is something else that we have to bring up. Jane and Benjamin were born way before and even an inclining of breaking away from Britain was formed. They were when the, the Revolutionary War actually started, they were both they were both pretty old. So we want to get that context in. So she was born in seventeen twelve. So that's years and years before we even started to talk about breaking away from Britain. So Jane Franklin Meekum's favorite sister of Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston, the youngest of the 17 children of Joshua Franklin, Tower Chandler, and of the 10 children, his second wife, Abba Folger. Abaya. Abaya. Sorry, Abaya. Okay, so how many kids was that? Well, they, there were 20 altogether, but um, a, a couple of them died as babies. So there was 20 altogether. There were 17 that survived to be counted as, you know, living children. That's a lot of kids. Uh, ten, ten each. Ten each Good. wife. Good Lord. I know. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, her father had moved to Boston from North Hampshire, England, in 1683. Her mother was born... Ah. What did I do? Oh. <laughs> I moved the page. I moved the page. Um, her mother was born in Nantucket, the youngest child of one of the island's first settlers. And we're going to get into this genealogy because we, on her mother's side, we highlighted a loyalist uh, three shows ago that was related to them. And at the time, we really didn't, we really didn't harp on it. We didn't get it. We knew in the end it was his cousin, but this is, uh, when we looked into Jane, we were like, oh, wow. Look at this. Yeah. More people. So, um, nothing is known of Jane's schooling, but it must have been limited at best. Six years younger than Benjamin, she was 11 when he ran away to Philadelphia. Although they saw each other only occasionally during the rest of their lives, their mutual affection transcended time and distance. Their surviving correspondence is more extensive than that between Franklin and almost any other private person. Now, I want to get that. I want to start with the the um, genealogy that you have. Okay. Of who was who, because it's important. Again, his cousin was a loyalist. Benjamin's son became a loyalist. Do you get the picture? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 this is from the Nutfield Genealogy website. Um, and uh, it, it's... Uh, if you're into genealogy, it's a, it's a really neat website to go. It's nutfieldgenealogy.blogspot.com, and it has a lot of information on different families. But 
there is a picture of the obelisk. Is that how you say it? Obelisk? Yes. At the Granary Burial Ground in Boston. It's very simple, and it just has uh, the name Franklin on it with a plaque. But it was erected by Benjamin Franklin uh, to his parents, Abiah Folger and Josiah Franklin. And and, um, she writes it. She writes about it because it was Independence Day. But anyways, I digress. Abaya Folger, Franklin's mother, was born August 15, 1667, on the island of Nantucket, Massachusetts, daughter of Peter Folger and Mary Morrill. Peter Folger came from Norwich, England, to Massachusetts with his father, John, in 1635. In 1663, he went to Nantucket as an Indian interpreter for Tristram Coffin. Mary Morell was a servant to Reverend Hugh Peters, an indentured servant, actually. So Peter bought her for 20 pounds to pay off her servitude. Well, that's a kind of harsh way of saying it. He bought her contract is basically what he did. Um, Not like... But, you know, the Irish were only this close to being slaves uh, back in the day. And that's a whole other show. But we, we, we talked about that on, on past shows where the Irish that came over um, had, had a hard time and they were, weren't treated much better than the uh, African slaves and West Indies slaves. So, anyways, he declared it was the best appropriation of money he had ever made. Now you know where Benjamin got his sense of humor. Um, yeah, the Folgers, they were an interesting bunch. Uh, <laughs> they were so, the family part on Nantucket. And uh, they, 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 <laughs> they were a few, there were a few uh, nuts on the tree, let's put it that way. Abiah Folger married... Josiah Franklin on uh, November 25th, 1689 at the Old South Church in Boston. Josiah was from Ecton, Northamptonshire, born on 23rd of December, 1657, and he died on January 16, 1745. He had previously been married to Anne Childs, who left him with seven children and, again, alive, um, as three had died, when she died on July 9th. 1689. You can see he wasted no time in remarrying Abiah, who not only raised his other children, but she had ten more. Benjamin was number eight and the youngest son. So, and this is from uh, a great, great seven times granddaughter of Bethshua Folger, Abiah's sister. So, uh, it's a, it's an interesting um, uh, blog post or a blog that you can go to for some genealogy is, uh, I mean, she has a whole bunch of, of different names. So anyways, that, that is uh, his parents. Um, and Josiah was a, uh, when he was in Boston, um, let's see, where was that? Was that, oh, God, did I leave that on my tablet? Hold on. <laughs> Going back and forth uh, myself. But Josiah was a tallow 
maker, and he he was a maker of candles and soap. While while in Boston, that was his um, his business, and he put Benjamin to work when when he was gosh, well he ran away at eleven, so he was working in the shop previous to that. So they uh, they put him in school, Benjamin, for a couple of years, but they couldn't afford to keep him in school. Okay, wait, wait, one minute. So Jane was eleven when Benjamin ran away. Benjamin ran away at seventeen. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, she okay. was. All right, but he was young. He was very young when uh, um, his father put him to work in the in the candle and soap. Making. You know, and the other thing that you brought up, which we're going to bring up again, is that this family, now how that we have an overview of the family and themselves, and we're going to get into their religion and, you know, more into them, but as an overview, because we didn't know we were doing, well, we knew it was Benjamin's cousin, but we didn't realize until we started doing Jane that the Franklins were really eccentric <laughs> compared to everybody else. Well, no, well, no, not really, because um, as I read more into, it made a lot more sense once I, I read more about um, the religion and, and the times of the upheaval within the Anglican Church and the Congregationalists that were here, as we'll get into later. But um, apparently, you know, they say that their childhood was... was you know, they were well taken care of. They worked hard. And, you know, I mean, Christ, when you have 17 kids, um, I'm sure the older ones definitely, uh, you know, put into the pot. And, uh, but Abaya apparently was, I think it was more the Folgers that were the eccentric ones. And And the Franklins were more free thinkers which in Puritan Massachusetts um, it, it could be kind of precarious. But anyways, it, as we get into it, Abaya was was a, a, a difficult woman, um, but when she had 17 kids to take care of. Anybody would be difficult. <laughs> but the, the childhood was, both Benjamin and Jane have said that their childhood was pleasant, and happy, and they were all, you know, as well provided for as they could be under their circumstances. And this was when Boston was was uh, primitive compared to during the Revolutionary War. I mean, this is in the early 1700s, so Boston wasn't the great uh, metropolis that it was, you know, 60 years later. So where do you want to go now? Are you there? Did I lose you? Uh-oh. Okay. I'm oh, here. <laughs> okay. I thought maybe you've gotten kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're done with that, that portion. Because there isn't that much to know, unfortunately. Okay. As usual. All right. So... Uh. On July 27th, 
1727, at the age of 15, again, a very young woman getting married. I think the youngest we've done so far, I think she is the youngest. Um, if I remember correctly, the youngest before her was 16 years old. Yes. So she is by far the youngest woman we've done. And we've actually done an older woman that didn't get married until she was 40, which is very unusual. So on July 27th, 1727, at the age of 15, Jane was married to Edward Meekham, a Boston saddler. He was a colorless individual, poor in health and in pocket. His major, contribu- major contribution to the family was the fathering of 12 children. Until the outbreak of the Revolution, Jane Meekham's life was almost wholly that of a housewife in a tradesman's family of low income preoccupied with the births, marriages, and deaths of children and grandchildren, with the struggle to provide food and clothing, and with her son's efforts to find careers. Now I'm going to go to Women's History Blog. Um, let's see. Hedward Meekham, a neighbor, was eight years her senior. It appears that her parents didn't like the match, possibly because of her youth, because she was married not by, by her youth, because she was married not by one of the ministers of her family church, but by William Cooper of the Brattle Street Church, which her uncle had attended. Edward came from a family even more obscure than the Franklins were at the time, and he made no mark except as Jane's husband. Um, All of the children except one were named after Jane's parents or brothers or sisters or herself, though her husband also had a sister. During Edward's later years, he was an invalid. Now, I want to go back to her parents not approving of her getting married, and Deb off air had brought up a good uh, point. Do you remember being a 15-year-old girl? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it goes a little bit deeper than that, and that's when you're going to bring up about the Puritans and what was going on. Yeah, this is, this is very interesting. Um, because they were uh, Puritans, and and that has the Puritans have become misunderstood also uh, throughout the revisionist history that we have. Um, you think of the the Salem witch trials, you know, and and they were stern and they didn't ever laugh or anything. Well, that that wasn't necessarily true, but they were very religious and they they uh, incorporated their religious beliefs into their daily lives. That's how they lived. So this is from um, public.wsu.edu. It's a uh, essay on Puritanism in New England. And this is is really quite interesting if you're into theology. My mom um, did instill in me a, a, a love of reading about you know, different religions and theology and everything and, you know, this whole thing about God and whatnot and churches. and So, and of course, coming from Massachusetts myself, um, in 1621, not myself personally, but my family, uh, I, my family, <laughs> my family's roots are Puritan. <laughs> and don't think I haven't gotten jokes about that. So, 
The term Puritan first began as a taunt or insult applied by traditional Anglicans to those who criticized or wished to purify, in quotes, the Church of England. Although the word is often applied loosely, Puritan refers to two distinct groups, separating Puritans, such as the Plymouth colonists, who believed that the Church of England was corrupt and that true Christians must separate themselves from it. That would be my folks. And non-separating Puritans, such as the colonists who settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony who believed in reform but not separation. Most Massachusetts colonists were non-separating Puritans who wished to reform the established church, largely Congregationalists who believed in forming churches through voluntary compacts. The idea of compacts or covenants, is another word for that, was central to the Puritans' conception of social, political, and religious organizations. Several beliefs differentiated Puritans from other Christians. The first was their belief in predestination. Puritans believed that belief in Jesus and participation in the sacraments could not alone affect one's salvation. One cannot choose salvation, for that is the privilege of God alone. All features of salvation are determined by God's sovereignty, including choosing those who will be saved and those who will receive God's irresistible grace. The Puritans distinguished between justification, or the gift of God's grace given to the elect, and sanctification, the holy behavior that supposedly resulted when an individual had been saved, according to the English literatures of America. Sanctification is evidence of salvation, but does not cause it. When William Laud an avowed Arminian, became Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, the Church of England began to embrace beliefs abhorrent to Puritans, a focus on the individual's acceptance or rejection of grace, a toleration of of diverse religious beliefs and acceptance of high church rituals and symbols. According to Samuel Eliot Morrison's Oxford History of the American People, the Puritans were deeply impressed by a story that their favorite church father, St. Augustine, told in his confessions. He heard a voice saying, Tous les leges, pick up and read. Opening the Bible, his eyes lit on Romans 13, 12 to 14. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in debauchery and lust, not in strife and jealousy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. The concept of a covenant or contract between God and his elect pervaded Puritan theology and social relationships. In religious terms, several types of covenants covenants were central to Puritan thought. There was the covenant of works that held that God promised Adam and his progeny eternal life if they obeyed moral law. After Adam broke this covenant, God made a new covenant of grace with Abraham. Covenant of grace. This covenant requires an act of faith, and as such, it softens the doctrine of predestination. Although God still chooses the elect, the relationship becomes one of contract in which punishment for sins is a judicially proper response to disobedience. During the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards later repudiated covenant um, covenant theology to get back to Orthodox Calvinism. Those bound by the covenant considered themselves to be charged with a mission from God. And then there was the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption was assumed to be 
preexistent to the covenant of grace. It held that Christ, who freely chose to sacrifice himself for fallen man, bound God to accept him as man's representative. Having accepted this pact, God is then committed to carrying out the covenant of grace. According to Perry Miller, as one contemporary source put it, God covenanted, oh, this is a hard word tonight, covenanted, covenanted with Christ that if he would pay the full price for the redemption of believers, they should be discharged. Christ has paid the price. God must be unjust or else he must set thee free from all inequity. Iniquity. So, um, it was the, the concept of the covenant also provided a practical means of organizing churches. Since the state did not control the church, the Puritans reasoned, there must be an alternate method of establishing authority, according to Harry S. Stout, for God's word to function freely and for each member to feel an integral part of the church's operations, each congregation must be self-sufficient, containing with itself all the officers, offices and powers necessary for self-regulation. New England's official apologist, John Cotton, termed this form of church government con- congregational, meaning that all authority would be located within particular congregations. Cotton, uh, sorry, we don't need to do that. Um, but it was really interesting how um, his sermon in, at Salem in 1636, um, it, it uh, described the basic elements of this system in which people covenanting themselves to each other and pledging to obey the word of God might become a self-governing church. Checks and balances in this self-governing model included the requirement that members testify to their experience of grace to ensure the purity of the church and its members, and the election of church officials to ensure the appropriate distribution of power with a pastor to preach, a teacher to attend to doctrine, elders to oversee the acts of spiritual rule, and a deacon to manage the everyday tasks of church organization and caring for the poor. This system of interlocking covenants that bound households to each other and to their ministers in an autonomous, self-ruling congregation was mirrored in the organization of towns. In each town, male church members could vote to elect selectmen to run the town's day-to-day affairs, although town meetings were held to vote on legislation. Thus, the ultimate authority in both political and religious spheres was God's word, but the commitments made to congregation and community through voluntary obedience to covenants ensured order and a functional system of religious and political governance. This system became to be called the Congressional or New England Way. According to Stout, by locating power in the particular towns and defining institutions in terms of local covenants and mutual commitments, the dangers of mobility and atomism, atomism, the chief threats to stability in the new world were minimized. As churches came into being only by means of a local covenant, so individual members could be released from their sacred oath only with the concurrence of the local body. Persons leaving without the consent of the body sacrificed not only church membership, but also property title, which was contingent on local residents. Through measures like these, which combined economic and spiritual restraints, New England towns achieved extraordinarily high levels of persistence and social cohesion. 
Unlike Anglican and Catholic churches of the time, Puritan churches did not hold that all parish residents should be full church members. A true church, they believed, consisted not of everyone, but of the elect. As a test of election, many New England churches began to require applicants for church membership to testify to their personal experience of God in the form of an autobiographical conversion narrative. Since citizenship was tied to church membership, the motivation for experiencing conversion was secular and civil as well as religious in nature. God's covenant that bound church members to him had to be renewed and accepted by each individual believer although this could be seen as a dilution of the covenant binding God in his chosen. And this is where, um, in, in the 1660s, there was a great debate and you know, a whole ballyhoo between the, the proponents of the halfway covenant and the Mathers um, increase. Mather and Cotton Mather, um, and, and you can read more about that by going here. It doesn't really have anything to do with it, except that the Old South Church that the Franklins went to believed in the Halfway Covenant, which was, oh, my God, you know, it just... Um, it raised a lot of uh, bad feelings and arguments between the two, the ones that didn't believe in the halfway covenant. Um, and this was around baptism, the, the privilege of baptism but not communion, um, that the second generation be granted the same privilege of baptism but not communion as had been granted to the first generation. Of course, we're getting into the weeds now, so I, I'll just leave it at that. Uh and this is where they were they were getting further and further away from the Church of England. They've been here long enough. They have been living their lives, giving birth to generations of children, settling, creating villages and communities and, and building churches and, you know, governments. Of course, the church and the governments were intertwined at this time in the uh, 17th century. And they were looking at the the stuff that was happening with the Church of England in England, the Anglican Church, um, and going, eh, no, not really. So this was also a, a point in time that our founders went to. I mean, if, when you when you read um, how they they uh, they put together the you know the the self sufficient congregation, you know, had everything that it needed in one church, in one community, in one one congregation, and they they put that into the towns. Uh, you know, it's brilliant, actually. Um, so it created dissension and you know a lot of the uh a lot of the um you know there was a lot of uh, well you can read cotton and increase mathers um sermons and you can read uh richard and uh um solomon stoddard and uh you know there were the mathers the stoddards and then there were the uh which when i get into the other uh 
the other church, the Brattle Street Church, uh, where the, uh, Jane and Edward were married, that also is another offshoot of the Congregationalist, you know, branch of the Anglican um, Church. So it's really, I mean, when you when you read about this, and, and this is what they lived. This is what they lived. That's why I say context is so important. So this was this was the time that Ben Franklin's father was growing into and becoming a man and raising a family. You know, he came from England in the late 1600s, and and he built he built a, a business in Boston. Went to the Old South Church. The whole family did. And and the uh, let me get to the Old South Church here. Hold on. Um, yeah, you'll find out who also went to the Old South Church. Well, and you're bringing up the reason we're doing this, like you're saying, putting everything into context. This is also a time where the Americans were starting, like you said, to get further and further and further away from England, England's thoughts, England's church, England, the way stuff was done in England because they were in a new land. They had to change the way they did stuff. And this is where Benjamin was growing up, and so was Jane. So already you had the seeds of change in their lives. Yes. And seeing how old ways didn't work. So right. you have the opposite. Right now we have the opposite problem. Yes. The old ways, the Constitution, the family unit, God, these are all with, with modern progs, or progs of, <laughs> that have been doing this for 150 years. But this, in their mind, these are old ways that don't work. These old ways worked. They worked, yes. The new ways didn't. Back no. in the colonial times, the old ways didn't work. The new ways did. But now we're backwards, upside down world. Well, the, the new ways aren't working. The old ways was you had the monarch or the uh, the lord of the manor, you know, depending on where you know which um, uh, state you were in. You know, the Germanic was different than the British, but um, you still had the feudal, I mean, these people were coming out of the feudal society where you had the one, the lord of the manor and the peasants. And the the ones who belonged to the lord of the manor, you know, the family I'm talking about, they lived 180 from those who were not of the lord of the manor. And you had the the high church and the high government, the landowners, the barons, the you know the the uh, what are the other uh, dukes and you know all those titles, and then you had the peasants who worked. They were the worker bees, and so these they were coming out of the and they had no rights. You know, it, it, until recently at this point in time, they weren't allowed to learn how to read or write. Only the church people could do that or the government officials uh, could read or write. And that was one way of keeping the masses down. So they're coming out of that dark period into the 
you know, the great awakening and and then there was the reawakening, the second awakening, um I'm not sure exactly what it was called, but so this was an an explosive time throughout the land and here are the colonies in America going you know, I think we can do the church, you know, which works for us. You know, it works better for us this way. And that is the beginning. That I mean, it starts in the church, in the community, in the congregations where they start thinking we're American. You know, it's different for us. We're different. And it starts and it's so exciting. As you can tell, here I am again. But anyways, the Old South Church in Boston. Um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, okay, these are the people that went to the church, the Old South Church. It was, uh, I mean, they, the congregation baptized Benjamin Franklin on the day he was born, and his family members were prominent leaders. Phyllis Whitley, America's first published black poetess, Mary Chilton, the first woman to step ashore at Plymouth in 1620, were members of this church. So, too, were Samuel Adams, revolutionary and patriot, my favorite, William Dawes, who rode with Paul Revere, and Thomas Prince, book collector. And we've talked about all these people in in our, um, well, except for Mary Chilton, because she was... Uh, she was at Plymouth in 1620, and we haven't done the the women of the, you know, the, the landing. Um, and it, it, the Old South Church played a significant role in early American history through the bold actions of the Sons of Liberty at the Old South Meeting House. There in 1773, Samuel Adams gave the signal for the war whoops that started the Boston Tea Party. And the, uh, um, there was a keynote address delivered by Reverend James W. Crawford that you can read also. He's the senior minister emeritus. And then uh and then it goes on, you know, through the Civil War and and up to the uh up to the taint. But the Old Church congregation is a descendant of the fusion between separatist and dissenting pilgrims, Puritan reformers and Bay Colony merchant adventurers who left England in the seventeenth century some to escape persecution and others to forge a more prosperous life in the New World. As we've said, it was either religious or economical, or both. The congregation, initially called the Third Church in Boston, was born in controversy in 1669 over the question of baptism. Both the First and Second Church in Boston were headed by ministers who opposed the halfway covenant of 1662. These ministers required that baptized adults have a regeneration experience of God, you know, a born-again experience, before they could have their own children baptized. Twenty-eight lay members of the First Church seceded and founded this congregation in the belief, consistent with the halfway covenant, that childhood baptism should assure young adults that they would be full members and could baptize their children, who in turn should automatically be members as adults. Um, the founders of Old South understood themselves to be a priesthood of all believers related to God solely through Christ and justified by grace through faith. Their covenant stated, we, being called of God, to join together into a church, do in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, trusting only in his grace and help, solemnly bind ourselves together as in the presence of God and constantly to walk together as a church of Christ. 
We give up ourselves and our offspring unto our Lord Jesus Christ as the only mediator, our only spiritual head. So, um, and then even further, this is just interesting. In the early 19th century, this congregation under the leadership of ministers Joseph Eckley, Joshua Huntington, and Benjamin Wisner or Wisner, again went against the prevailing congressional theology today and resisted becoming Unitarian. So, so you can see that even, even in the religious sector, Americans had their own way. They had their own thoughts. They knew what was good for them. They knew what worked for them. And it wasn't always what, uh, uh, well, God, that was the time of James II and, um, oh, I can't think of who came after James II. But anyways, but, you know, so what a time. It's like our time. <laughs> it's just, oh, my God. But it just shows. Well, so, but you bring up a good point because if this is all happening, again, you bring in, the rebellious 15-year-old, and she fell in love with this guy. I still have no idea why, but... <laughs> I know. Well, you should have been a smooth talker and a good kisser, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She was young. <laughs> anyway, so that's the background on her family and possibly why Benjamin ran away and why she decided she was going to marry, who she was marrying, where she was going to marry, which is important, Billy, like, that, like you said, Deb, it brings into context. And you can see okay. that is that they were brought up with. You know? I mean, the congregation was the whole neighborhood, so everybody was talking about it. You know, I'm sure they talked about it in between prayers, you know, at the dinner table. Okay. So, at the outbreak of the revolution, like I said, her life was almost totally that of a housewife and tradesman's family. The family lived with or close to her parents who owned a group of houses at Hanover and Union Street. Here she cared for her father and mother until they died, and here she continued to live for several years, taking in boarders to eke out her husband's slender income. Um, let's see. Okay, let me see the other article. Uh... Jane's life with Edward Meekham was fraught with economic and emotional difficulty. Uh, we told her about the 12 children, and two sons suffered from disability mental illness in adulthood. Grandchildren gave her headaches and heartaches. Her life was not easy and was not typical, atypical of 18th century colonial women. Distance and very, very different destinies did not weaken the sibling bond, however. Jane and her brother were dedicated letter writers. Months or even years might pass between letters, but the correspondence that began in 1727 continued until Benjamin Franklin's death in 1790, a total of 63 years. It is believed that the first letter Benjamin Franklin wrote to his sister was to congratulate her upon her marriage. Philadelphia, January 6, 1727. Dear sister, I am highly pleased with the account Captain Freeman gives me of you. I always judged by your behavior when a child that you would make a good, agreeable woman, and you know you were ever my peculiar favorite. 
I have been thinking what would be a suitable present for me to make and for you to receive, as I hear you are a grown and celebrated beauty. I had almost determined on a tea table, but when I considered that the character of a good housewife was far preferable to that of being only a pretty gentlewoman, I concluded to send you a spinning wheel, <laughs> which I hope you will accept as a small token of my sincere love and affection. You know, Deb, um, yeah, I would have liked the spinning wheel better than the tea table. <laughs> Yeah. Sister, farewell, and remember that modesty, as it makes the most homely virgin amiable and charming, so the want of infallible infallibility renders the most perfect beauty disagreeable and odious. But when that brightest of female virtues shines among other perfections of body and mind in the same person, it makes the woman more lovely than an angel. Excuse this freedom and use the same with me. I am dear Jenny, your loving brother, B. Franklin. The correspondence between her and her brother was a source of joy for Jane Meekum. It provided emotional support for both of them and created a lifelong bond that weathered physical separation, the upheaval of the Revolutionary War, and the challenges of old age. What emerges from the correspondence is the story of two people who feel great affection and respect for each other. Jane kept her brother informed of family news, the health of parents and siblings, the joys and sorrows of numerous nieces and nephews. Jane's son, Benjamin, was particularly important to Franklin, who set him up as a printer in Antigua in 1752. Benjamin later quarreled with his uncle and bought the press from him, moving it from Antigua to Boston in 1757, and from there to several other colonial cities. Benjamin Meekin went insane, as did his brother Peter, and disappeared some time following the Battle of Trenton. Now, to bring this again into perspective, um, we have found, Deb has found out about Antigua, because other colonies, this it was important, because during the, before the Revolutionary War, we were basically export uh, we were an export company. We exported our goods so that they could be manufactured other places, and then we imported the, the, the finished product. We weren't a manufacturing-based uh, nation. And not only did we export to England, but we had to export to other colonies that England had acquired, as well as get goods from others. Because remember, we were getting rolled well, we and getting rum from certain colonies that they had. What else were we getting? Um, we, we had gone over it as we came out with the ladies because once we, the war started, England put a kibosh on all of our trade. Yeah, we weren't getting anything from anywhere. And that's what sprung the homespun movement amongst the women, which was the first manufacturing. But yeah, yeah, Hillary Clinton, um, women hit the glass ceiling a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, really. They were the first manufacturers of goods in the United States of America. Women, uh, especially the daughters of uh, was it daughters of revolution? Now daughters of liberty. Yes. Um, women started manufacturing here. Women did, not men. And to me, back in that day, that was the glass ceiling. Anyway, so that going to tell us about Antigua. Okay. Antigua. A brief history. 
from the British Empire dot co dot uk. I thought we might just go right to the origin here. In sixteen thirty two, a group of English colonists left Saint Kitts to settle on Antigua. The Spanish had taken it before. Um and they did the whole uh oh they did Honduras and, you know, Central America, um, and that. But the English came in 1632, and Sir Christopher Cudrington, an Englishman, established the first permanent European settlement. From that point on, Antigua history took a dramatic turn. Codrington guided development on the island as a profitable sugar colony. For a large portion of Antigua history, the island was considered Britain's gateway to the Caribbean. It was located on the major sailing routes among the region's resource-rich colonies. Lord Horatio Nelson, a major figure in Antigua history, arrived in the late 18th century to preserve the island's commercial shipping prowess. European and African diseases, malnutrition, and slavery eventually destroyed the vast majority of the Caribbean native population. No researcher has conclusively proven any of these causes is the real reason for the destruction of West Indian natives. In fact, some historians believe that the psychological stress of slavery may also have played a part in the massive number of native deaths while in servitude. Others believe that the reportedly abundant but starchy low-protein diet may have contributed to severe malnutrition of the Indians who were used to a diet fortified with protein from sea life. Sugar became Antigua's main crop in about 1674 when Christopher Codrington settled at Betty's Hope Estate. He came from Barbados, bringing the latest sugar technology with him. Betty's Hope, Antigua's first full-scale sugar plantation, was so successful that other planters turned from tobacco to sugar. This resulted in their importing tens of thousands of slaves as sugar cultivation and processing was labor-intensive. Many West Indian colonists initially tried to use Indians and Europeans as indentured servants to man the plantations. These groups succumbed easily to disease or malnutrition and died by by the thousands. The African slaves had the misfortune of adapting well to the new environment and thus became the number one choice of unpaid labor. In fact, the slaves throve physically and also provided medical services and skilled labor such as carpentry for their slave masters. By the mid-1770s, the number of slaves had increased to 37,500 from 12,500 in 1713, whereas the white population had fallen from 5,000 to below 3,000. The slaves lived in wretched and overcrowded conditions and could be mistreated or even killed by their owners with impunity. The Slave Act of 1723 made arbitrary murder of slaves illegal but did not do much to ease their lives. Unrest among the slaves became increasingly common. In 1729, a slave named Hercules was hanged, drawn, and quartered, and three others burnt alive for conspiring to kill the slave owner Crump and his family. In 1736, a slave called Prince Cloth, whose real name was Court, planned an uprising in which whites would be massacred. Court was crowned king of the Coromantes in a pasture outside the capital of St. John's at what appeared to be just a colorful spectacle spectacle, but was for the slaves a ritual declaration of war on the whites. Due to information obtained from other slaves, colonists discovered the plot and suppressed it. Prince Claus and four accomplices were caught and executed by the breaking wheel. Six slaves were hanged in chains and starved to death, and another 58 were burned at the stake. 
The American War of Independence in the late 18th century disrupted the Caribbean sugar trade. A young Nelson was posted to Antigua to enforce the Navigation Acts to stop trading with the newly independent USA. He made himself unpopular with local merchants who were keen to get the highest prices for their produce. A slave trade was abolished throughout the empire in 1807, and the Antiguan plantations had to rely on replacing the slave labor internally. In 1834, the slaves were freed, creating a radical shift in the economic dynamics of the colony. However, by this time, sugarcane was no longer fetching the high prices that it had historically fetched. This was due to the increased use of sugar beet in Europe, which was cheaper and easier to source. Antigua started a slide into economic stagnation with no obvious replacement for the cash crop of sugar. Yeah, the the history of uh, Britain's... um, colonies is also a very uh, enlightening part of history. You notice we don't really have any colonies. Well, you notice in that in that account how we didn't have any of these uprisings with our slaves here in America. We didn't treat them the same way that we did. They did because we were God-fearing people. I mean, we had maybe two rebellions and that was it. As a matter of fact, most of the, there was a lot of slaves that fought in the Revolutionary War, and there was many, many, many more that fought in the uh, Civil War. Yeah, they treated they treated the slaves differently in in the um, 18th century than they did in the 19th century. Um, it, it it would be an interesting um, to see when it changed, uh, because you know there there were so many founders that that. Even though they had slaves of their own, um, and and it was acceptable at that time, they were get you know because of this change, these these the age of enlightenment and the reawakenings that were going on, a lot of the the educated you know men of land, you know the landowners and the plantation owners. And the plantations were different then too. They weren't quite like they were, as uh, you know, we read about in, in the in the South. Um, in fact, it well, was, it's also interesting that um, there was only they only had one crop. Yeah. You know, a whole country just had one crop. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was you know not that big an island. <laughs> oh yeah, but still, was like the Carolinas. Yeah. I mean, yeah, see, this is the other thing is um, Americans knew how to, I mean, talk, you want to talk diversity? <laughs> yeah, they knew how to be diverse in their crops. And that's what, you know, George Washington and Jefferson and John Adams were agriculturalists. They 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 spent many years trying to improve farming. To make it, um, you know, so they didn't, because well, tobacco just, you know, leaches the soil of all the nutrients. I mean, you you can't plant tobacco for very long without the soil just becoming practically sterile. But they they learned how to do different types of farming so that it was efficient as well as productive. And you know, the rotating of crops, the the uh, oh, the, well, there's you know several different ways that they they were um, experimenting with. Now, they were farmers. George Washington had five farms here in Virginia. 
John Adams had, well, he had three. And, of course, Jefferson, his whole place was just one big experiment. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I I don't have the money, but I just definitely have, I feel the pain. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's see. Um when in July 1753, Benjamin Franklin visited in Boston, he found his sister Jane in awe of him as she had never been before. Benjamin, the apprentice of 30 years before, who in the New England Quran had ridiculed the beetle skulls of Harvard, now received from Harvard the earliest of his academic honors. And, and look, it's 1753. We're pretty far away from the revolution. Jane read in the Boston Gazette of July 31st, 1753, on Monday last, the corporation of Harvard College met at Cambridge, and taking into consideration the great genius of Benjamin Franklin of Philadelphia Esquire, for learning the high advances he has made in natural philosophy, more especially in the doctrine and experiments of electricity, whereby he has rendered himself justly famous in the learned world, unanimously voted him a degree of Master of Arts, which vote was the day following as fully confirmed by the overseers of that society, and on Friday the president presented him with a diploma, therefore. Now, he was self-taught, okay? So was James Madison. Uh, I think James Madison went to school for two years, and he just, it was too much for him. He also had, he also had depression problems as well, but... Um, these men that everybody makes fun of, most of them were either very inventive farmers, like Deb just pointed out, that they would they would have to, you know, make notes and do all kinds of stuff that scientists do on their own, self-taught by Benjamin Franklin, didn't go to college, didn't have, he, he made fun of the professors in college. That cracks me up. Mm. You know? <laughs> He's rolling over his grave right now with what's going on in colleges. Okay, so on London, March 1st, 1766. Dear sister, I acknowledge the receipt of your kind letters of November 12th and December 20th. The latter per Mr. Williams. I condole with you on the death of your husband, who was, I believe, truly affectionate one to you and fully sensible of your merit. It is not true that I have bought any estate here, that I bought any estate here. Um, can you do me a favor, Deb, and look up if you have enough bandwidth um, methods of getting letters across to England? Okay. Or just look, just look up how they, they did correspondence back in the day. Um, let's see. I have not bought any estate here. I have indeed had some thoughts of repurchasing the little one in North Hampshire that was our grandfather's and had been many generations in the family, but was sold by our Uncle Thomas, only child, Mrs. Fisher, the same that left you the legacy. However, I shall not do it unless I determine to remain in England, which I have not done yet. Your affectionate brother, B. Franklin. During the winter and spring before the Battle of Lexington, 1775, Jane Meekham wrote her... Hold on a minute. Jane Meekham wrote her brother, she afterward told him, a great number of letters, but there is nothing to show that they reached Ben in London. She believed they were interceptive and they may have been, which is why I wanted you to look up the letters, because um, I was surprised that a lot of people, like even I was surprised that John and Abigail 
had correspondences while the war was going on, you know, because those letters would have been great, in, you know, as far as the, the Crown was concerned. They might have some, you know, um, intelligence uh, value. During 1775, Ben Franklin was elected as a Philadelphia, a Pennsylvania delegate to the Second Continental Congress, served as chairman of the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety, and was appointed postmaster general of the colonies. In the year 1776, Ben served on a committee of five who drafted the Declaration of Independence. He arrived in Paris on December 21st to serve as one of the commissioners of Congress to the French court. During the Revolution, Jane Franklin Meekham moved to Warwick, Rhode Island, and stayed with Franklin's friends Catherine Ray Green and her husband William. From there, she went to the, to the Philadelphia home of Sarah, Ben's daughter, and Richard Bach. Did you find anything? Yes. Okay, because then after that, you can go into a brief history of Rhode Island because she stayed in Rhode Island for a while. We have not really highlighted Rhode Island at all. Yeah, well, we did it. We did it. We had somebody from Rhode Island. We did it a, a little bit, but. Okay, so this is from the, uh, I don't know what it's from. What is it? History of the Post Office um, at col.com. <laughs> in colonial times, uh, correspondence depended on friends, merchants, and Native Americans to carry messages between the colonies. However, most correspondence ran between the colonists in England, their mother country. It was largely to handle this mail that, in 1633, the first official notice of a postal service in the colonies appeared. The General Court of Massachusetts designated Richard Fairbanks Tavern in Boston as the official repository of mail brought from or sent overseas. In line with the practice of England and other nations to ease coffee or to use coffee houses and taverns as mail drops, local authorities operated post routes within the colonies. Then in 1673, Governor Francis Lovelace of New York set up a monthly post between New York and Boston. The service was of short duration, but the post riders' trail became known as the Old Boston Post Road, part of today's U.S. Route 1. William Penn established Pennsylvania's first post office in 1683. In the South, private messengers, usually slaves, connected the huge plantations. A hogshead of tobacco was the penalty for failing to relay mail to the next plantation. Central Post Postal Organization came to the colonies only after 1691 when Thomas Neal received a 21-year grant from the British Crown for a North American Postal Service. Neal never visited America. Instead, he appointed Governor Andrew Hamilton of New Jersey as his deputy postmaster general. Neal's franchise cost him only 80 cents a year, but was no bargain. He died heavily in debt. In 1633, after assigning his interest in America to Andrew Hamilton and another Englishman, R. West, in 1707, the British government bought the rights to the North American Postal Service from West and the widow of Andrew Hamilton. It then appointed John Hamilton, Andrew's son, as Deputy Postmaster General of America. He served until 1721, when he was succeeded by John Lloyd of Charleston, South Carolina. In 1730, Alexander Spotswood, a former Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, became Deputy Postmaster General for America. Um, let's see. His most notable achievement probably was the appointment of Benjamin Franklin as Postmaster of Philadelphia in 1737, Franklin was only 31 years old at the time, the struggling printer and publisher of the Pennsylvania Gazette. Later, he would become one of the most popular men of his age. 
Um, then they tell you oh, more. Okay, let's see. Hunter died and new surveys were made. Milestones were placed on principal work. Okay. Um, during his time as joint postmaster general for the crown, Franklin effected many important and lasting improvements in the colonial post. He immediately began to reorganize the service, setting out on a long tour to inspect post offices in the north and others as far south as Virginia. New surveys were made, milestones were placed on principal roads, and new and shorter routes laid out. For the first time, post riders carried mail at night between Philadelphia and New York with the travel time shortened by at least half. In 1760, Franklin reported a surplus to the British Postmaster General, a first for the Postal Service in North America. When Franklin left office, post roads operated from Maine to Florida and from New York to Canada, and mail between the colonies and the mother country operated on a regular schedule with posted times. In addition, to regulate post offices and audit accounts, the position of surveyor was created in 1772, and this is considered the precursor of today's Postal Inspection Service. By 1774, however, the colonists viewed the Royal Post Office with suspicion. Franklin was dismissed by the Crown for actions sympathetic to the cause of the colonies. Shortly after, William Goddard, a printer and newspaper publisher whose father had been postmaster of New London, Connecticut, under Franklin, set up a constitutional post for intercolonial mail service. Colonies funded it by subscription, and net revenues were to be used to improve the postal service rather than to be paid back to the subscribers. By 1775, when the Continental Congress met at Philadelphia, Goddard's colonial post was flourishing, and 30 post offices operated between Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Williamsburg. Um, uh, let's see, and then... After the Boston riots in September 1774, the colonies began to separate from the mother country. A Continental Congress was organized at Philadelphia in May 1775 to establish an independent government. One of the first questions before the delegates was how to convey and deliver the mail. Benjamin Franklin, newly returned from England, was appointed chairman of a committee of investigation to establish a postal system. The report of the committee providing for the appointment of a postmaster general for the 13 American colonies was considered by the Continental Congress on July 25th and 26th. On July 26, 75, Franklin was appointed postmaster general, the first appointment under the Continental Congress, the establishment of the organization that became the United States Postal Service nearly two centuries later traces back to this date. Richard Bach, Franklin's son-in-law, was named Comptroller, and William Goddard was appointed surveyor. Franklin served until November 7, 1776. America's present postal service descends in an unbroken line from the system he planned and placed in operation, and history right, rightfully accords him major credit for establishing the basis of the postal service that has performed magnificently for the American people. Uh, well, up until recently. But anyways, so... Yeah, there were, you know, the the taverns were so um, important. (laughs) They were really, 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 really important. Yeah, they they were they were the hub of the community, apparently. Well, and and, you know, a lot of things could go on in the tavern. It was noisy. It was busy. There was singing. There was dancing. Spies could do whatever they want there. I mean, it was you know, people could be meeting and you didn't even know what they were meeting for, or they'd be playing cards and they're really having 
Sons of Liberty meeting. I mean, it was just a good, opportune place. Yeah. You know what's really funny? All of the sci-fi shows that are on, I want, I'm a, my husband and I are fantasy and sci-fi freaks. Um, <laughs> we like anything that's, you know, it has to be really good, though, you know, very intellectually written, like like the old sci-fi um, books, which, yeah. by the way, those sci-fi books, almost everything has come to fruition that's in them. So these people aren't stupid that are writing these things. I don't know. But anyway, in the new sci-fi movies, starting with Star Wars, notice it's going back to that scene. Every time they want to find something, or they, because we're watching a bunch, a couple of different ones right now, but every time they go to a planet and they want to find something or they want to get some information, they go to the tavern. Yep. They know what's going on. Okay, so, in the siege, my screen is all screwed up. My, 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 Poor computer screen is like dying. It's got black all over it, and it's seeping in like the blob. <laughs> when the siege of Boston began in the spring of 1775, Jane Meekum, for 10 years a widow, managed to leave the city with a few clothes and household effects and took refuge with friends in Rhode Island. That autumn, her brother, returning from a mission to Washington's army at Cambridge, escorted her to Philadelphia, where she remained in his home until the British advanced on the city in September 1777. Then she returned to Rhode Island and lived with a married granddaughter. Now, this is a is, um, letter to uh, her from Benjamin. He had escorted her, and then he went off to Paris. Passing near Paris, October 5, 1777. Dear sister, I suppose some of your kind letters to me have miscarried, as I have received but one since my arrival in France. I hope, nevertheless, that you continue well and that you are still with my children, especially as it is supposed that the Howes are gone to Boston, where you must have been, again, disturbed if you had returned hither. Now, we brought this up off air, and you said that um, the war was really hard on women, which it was. But this poor woman, she doesn't have that much money, okay? She's got to get money for passage to go to these places. She's already fleed, what? Seven colonies, six colonies? Yeah. I mean, she went from Boston, then she went to Philadelphia, then she went to Rhode Island. Now she's going, now she's in Philadelphia, and she was going to go back to Boston, but a good thing she didn't because it was going to be, you know, taken over. Yeah, she went uh, back to Boston until the 80s. I mean, she's just going, moving all over the place. I mean, yeah. moving is not easy. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I was a travel nurse for five years. <laughs> I lived out of the back of my Land Rover, and it is not easy to move every 13 weeks. No. I do that for five years. Well, and you figure, let's see, she was born in 1712, so she's, she's 60-ish. Right, when the war's breaking out. I enjoy here an exceeding good state of health. I live in a fine airy house upon a hill, which has a large garden with fine walks in it, about half an hour's drive from the city of Paris. I walk a little every day in the garden, have, good, have a good appetite, and sleep well. I think the French cookery agrees with me better than the English. I suppose because there is little or no butter in their sauces 
Well, I have never once had the heartburn since my being here, though I eat heartily, which shows that my digestion is good. I have got into a good neighborhood of very agreeable people who appear very fond of me. At least they are pleasingly civil. But upon the whole, I live as comfortably as a man can, well, do so far from his home and his family. I was glad to learn of yours, which was dated December 16, 1776, December 16th, that your son Callus was returned and engaged in the service of the public. I hear he is in France lately. I suppose he brought your letters, as you mentioned, sending it by him. But he did not come up to Paris, and so I did not see him. I wish him success in his new employment. My grandchildren here are a comfort and pleasure to me. I long to see little bold Will. Kiss him for me. In short, I long to see and be with you all. But God only knows whether I shall ever be so happy again. I am as ever, my dear sister, your affectionate brother, B. Franklin. Okay, I just found a letter that she wrote May 1775 for Warwick. And this is... um, basically after the battle in 1775 and this is this leads up to what you just read and this shows what she was going through as well as her neighbors if you'd like me to read it sure okay my ever dear and much honored brother god be praised for bringing you safe back to america and supporting you through such fatigues as i know you have suffered while the ministry has been distressing poor new england in such a cruel manner and the ministry, she means the uh, the um, the English, the British ministry, in the Parliament part of the government. Your last by poor Quincy uh, advises me to keep up my courage, and that foul weather does not last always in any country. But I believe you did not then imagine the storm that would have arisen so high as for the general to have sent out a party to creep out in the night and slaughter our dear brethren for endeavoring to defend our own property. But God appeared for us and drove them back with much greater loss than they are willing to own. Their countenances as well as confession of many of them show that they were much mistaken in the people they had to deal with. But the distress it has occasioned is past my description. The horror the town was in when the battle approached within hearing, except expecting they would proceed quite into town. The commotion the town was in after the battle, seized by the parties coming in, bringing in their wounded men, caused such an agitation of mind. I believe none had much sleep, since we, which we would ha- could have no quiet, as we understood our brethren without, were determined to dispose the town of the regulars, and the general shutting up the town, not letting any pass out, but throw such great difficulties as were almost insupportable. But through the goodness of God, I am at least got safe here and kindly received by Mr. Green and his wife, who, uh, to my great comfort, when I had got packed up what I expected to have liberty to carry out, intending to seek my fortune with hundreds of others not knowing whither, sent me an invitation and a letter to Mrs. Partridge, of which I gladly accepted. On the day I arrived at Providence, had the unspeakable pleasure of hearing my dear brother was safe arrived at his own home. Blessed be God for all his mercies to me, an unworthy creature. These people seem formed for hospitality, appear to be pleased with the vast additions to their family, which consists of old Mr. Gow and wife, their son's wife, a Negro boy, Mrs. Thomas Leverett's wife, two children, and a maid, myself and granddaughter, who I could not leave. 
If I had, it would have been her death, and they expect to stay three more of Mr. Leverett's children, Mr. Leverett's children, young Mr. Gosucky and Mrs. Partridge and daughter, and seem as though their hearts were open to all the world. They sent for old Mrs. Downs, but don't know if she designs to come, as it is so extremely difficult to get a line to pass to each other. Mrs. Leverett is trying to get a house to keep house by herself. My poor little delicate neighbor, Mrs. Royal, and family came out with me, not knowing where she should find a place. I left them at Cambridge in a most shocking, disagreeable place, but since here she has gone to Worcester. My own daughter had been at board at Roxbury almost a year before, but she with the family were obliged to fly into the woods, and though they returned again, they think themselves very unsafe, and she was in great concern what course to take when the day before I left her she received a letter from her husband that he was safe and arrived at Bedford in Dartmouth, not daring to venture into Salem for whence they sailed. This also was a great ease to my mind as she might now soon expect her husband to take care of her. I am still under great concern for Cousin William. He was out of town at the time of the battle and was advised to keep out, and his poor wife slaved herself almost to death to pack up and secure what she could and sent away her two daughters, intending to go to him, and behold, in comes he into town the day before I came out, imagining, as I was told, for I did not see him, that that was the safest place. I can hear nothing of him since. You will have seen the general letter to Connecticut and be able to judge of the truth of his insinuations by his fidelity to us poor Bostonians. I have wrought a great number, written, well, wrought, wrote a great number of letters to you the winter and spring past, but cannot perceive by yourself or cousin Jonathan that you have received any of them. I sent one about a month ago, but as you are returned, it is no matter if you never get it. Present my love to my cousin. Oh, present my love to my cousins, beaches, and the dear children, and ex- accept the same from your ever affectionate sister. Whew. So, I mean, it's just um, amazing what these people want. Well, and if you think about it, she's writing these letters at pain of death now. Yeah. I mean, her whole family is threatened. Yes, yes. They're all, they're all part of the treasonous, you know, patriots yeah. rebels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were all, you know, like, it, it, they were all traitors. Okay, let's see. Um, now she's back in Rhode Island. And... 1784, she reestablished her home in Boston. There until her death, she lived in a house her brother owned, sharing it with her one surviving daughter, Jane, and the latter's husband, Peter Collins, a rather inept ship captain. During the winter of, that was 17, where are we, 1777. Okay. So then we're going to jump ahead because this, this is what they're doing. Um, let's see. During the winter of 1782-83, Jane Meekham had the first serious illness of her life, of which she spoke in a letter to Richard Bach the following April, two weeks after her 70th birthday. I have had such an 
admonition this winter of the suddenness by which I might be called out of this world, which was succeeded by a severe fit of sickness that has taught me to be continually looking to the decisive hour when I shall have no further concern in this world. And this is when Franklin was in a Parisian suburb of Tassi. Now, I'm going to go, it's going to go into her financial situation a little bit. So, and, and a little bit how they felt about each other, and then I'm going to go back to her letters. It says, through all these troubled years, Benjamin Franklin helped her financially, sometimes with money, sometimes with goods she and her daughters could turn into profit. In the later years, he settled on her an annual income, and in his will, bequeathed to her the Boston house and the life income of 90 pounds. She adored her brother, but stood a little in awe of him and of his fame. She never tried to understand all his scientific or political activities, but liked to read anything he had published. Like some other members of her, of her family, she was sensitive to slights and criticisms, and sometimes was hurt at what he said about her behavior toward other relatives. Yet his conversation when they were together, his letters when they were apart, and his constant affection appeared to be the great joys of her life. And she, in, t- in turn, was one member of his family to whom he could talk and write without restraint. Judging by their surviving letters more than his mother, his wife Deborah, or Reed, Deborah Reed Franklin, or his daughter Sarah Franklin Bach, his sister Jane gave him the feminine intimacy and understanding of a family member that his nature seemed to crave. So then we go back... Um, Jane corresponded with Franklin while he was abroad, keeping him informed of public opinion in America. The last letter Benjamin Franklin wrote to America from France was to Jane Meekham. Since his resignation of his post as minister, he was the most celebrated private citizen in the world. St. German, 12 miles from Paris, July 13, 1785. Dear Sister, I left Tassie yesterday afternoon, and I'm here in my way to Havre de Grace, Grace, a seaport, in order to embark for America. I make use of one of the king's litters carried by mules, who walk steadily and easily so that I bear the motion very well. I am to be taking aboard a Philadelphia ship on the coast of England, the beginning of next month. Not having written to you since that which contained a bill for you on Mr. Vernon, And as I may not have another opportunity before my arrival in Philadelphia, if it pleases God I do arrive, I write these particulars to go by way of England, and that may be less uneasy about me, that you may be less uneasy about me. I did my last public act in this country just before I set out, which was signing a treaty of amity and commerce with Prussia. I have continued to work till late in the day, but it is time I should go home and go to bed. My love to your daughter and cousins, William, and believe me ever, my dear sister, your affectionate brother, Franklin. Be Franklin. Um, let's see. So, now, uh, in 1787, Franklin served as a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention. He held an honor position. Um, he did all the treaties, you know, all that. In May 18... 18- 1787, Colonel Winthrop Sargent called on Jane Meekham to tell her he was going to Philadelphia and would gladly carry a letter from her to Dr. Franklin. She had heard of her brother's appointment as a delegate from Pennsylvania to the Federal Convention 
which was meeting to frame a new constitution for the United States. Actually, they went there to both fix the Articles of Confederation, but did um, end up writing a new <laughs> constitution. But that wasn't their intent. Uh, let's see. Dear brother, I wanted to tell you how much pleasure I enjoy in the constant and lively mention of you in the newspapers, which makes you appear to me like a young man of 25 just setting out for the, uh, out for the other 80 years full of great designs for the benefit of mankind and your own nation in particular, which I hope with the assistance of such a number of wise men as you are connected with in the convention, you will gloriously accomplish and put a stop to the necessity of dragooning and haltering. They are both odious means. I'd rather hear of swords being beaten to plowshares and the halters used for cart rope. If by that means we may be brought to live peaceably with one another. Remember my love to your children and grandchildren from your affectionate sister, Jane Meekin. Um, let's see. As the siblings age, Ben provided more and more financial assistance to Jane, paying for her winter firewood or assisting her with housing costs. Although it may appear that he had much more to offer than her, than her wait, much more to offer her than vice versa, a favorite sister love and respect is a no small thing. He also valued her practical knowledge. In their last years, as the only siblings still alive of the original 17 children of Joshua Franklin, Jane Meekum and Ben Franklin sometimes mentioned the time when death would separate them. So I, I get choked up with stuff like this. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, but because everyone we talked about, even the, all the husbands and wives, the majority of them loved each other to death. Brothers and sisters, the majority of them loved each other to death. I mean, we were such a loving nation, and we just, we're not like that anymore. No, especially this time period. Okay, um, let's see. She expressed the hope that before the day came, they would be able to live next door to one another. That never happened. Ben Franklin's son-in-law, Richard Bach, wrote the letter to Jane Meekham that informed her of Benjamin's death. Philadelphia, April 19, 1790. Dear and honored madam, my duty calls upon me to make you acquainted with an event which I know will be a sore affliction to your affectionate breast. And lest the news should reach you and be communicated to you in an abrupt manner and that your tender feelings might still be more wounded, I have thought it best to enclose these few lines to a friend who I hope will first prepare you for the shock. Amidst the affliction of a distressed family, I am hardly connected enough to offer any consolation. My condolence at present must suffice. And my dear madam, I do most certainly sincerely condole with you on the loss of so excellent a friend and brother. I have not at present to add more than that he died on Saturday last at 11 o'clock at night. He had not been long, had not been long very ill, and therefore we had hardly an opportunity of informing you of it. Besides, we had been in daily expectation of his getting better, but nature was at last worn out. I beg of you to look upon me as your sincere friend and as one who will be very happy in rendering you any services in his power. I am, dear madame, your affectionate, affectionate kinsman, Rich Bach. 20,000 mourners attended Benjamin Franklin's funeral at Philadelphia's Christ Church burial ground. Ever the thoughtful older brother, Ben had arranged for an annuity in his last 
will and testament to supply Imcon for her sister as well as securing property for her. That was the property bought property for her in Boston. A few months later, Jane wrote to Ben's daughter, Sarah Bach. Dear niece, while he while living was to me every enjoyment, whatever other pleasures were as they most likely took their rides from him, they passed like little streams from a beautiful fountain. To make society agreeable, there must be a similarity of circumstances and sentiments as well as age. I have no such near me. My dear brother supplied all. Every line from him was a pleasure. It is, however, very agreeable to me to see there is hardly a newspaper comes out in this town without honorable mention of him. And indeed, it is a fund that cannot be exhausted. In 1802, Jane Franklin Meekham was 75 years old when she wrote her only surviving words about the childhood she and Ben had experienced in their father's house at the southeast corner of Union and Hanover Streets in Boston. It was indeed a lowly dwelling we were brought up in, but we were fed plentifully, made comfortable with fire and clothing, and seldom had any contention among us. But all was harmony, especially between the heads, and they were universally respected, the most of the family in good reputation. This is still happier living than multitudes enjoy. Jane Franklin Meekham died in 1794, four years after her brother, at the age of 82. Yes. She um she didn't hear from Benjamin for over two years from seventeen eighty ish to seventeen eighty two when he was in Paris. Um and she was quite upset about it. And she had been sick, she had lost a granddaughter. And uh and she was uh she was back in Cambridge in seventeen eighty two. Um but I mean her letters but these letters uh between the two of them are so sweet and and I mean, you, like I said, you can go over to the uh, archives.gov and, and find them all. Um, well, it, and it's a, a little bit deeper than she was a support to him. You know, he was he was away from America. He was away from his wife. He was away from his family. And, you know, think about it. We always talk about the propaganda machines, you know, the, the newspapers. The only thing these people had to go on, especially the ambassadors, what the foreign newspapers were saying about America. Right, and he write, he says in one of his letters that, um, you know, she alluded to an article that she had come across or someone had given to her, and he said, yeah, they take great, um, they, they take great liberty with, with me. Uh, I had received seven, um, well, what, newspapers or articles, and they were all lies. The British really were pounding on him. And uh, so imagine being back in America and, and getting these these articles um, with all these lies about your family member. And, and, and there's a fact that she didn't even hear from um, his daughter, Sarah, 
or her husband for two years. I mean, this was the end of the war, and everything was all mixed up and everything. And he was really sick during this time, too, with his affliction. And um, she was sick. I imagine she was just worn down. But she was, you know, they were both old, getting old. And so you think where you relied on letters. Um, because, you know, the newspapers at the time were definitely used as propaganda pieces. You know, they they were interesting. If you read the, uh, you can also find old newspapers online and you, about the Revolutionary War and the different people in it and what was written in different um, in different newspapers. So, you know, the Loyalist newspapers versus the, Patriot newspapers versus the British newspapers, and it. Uh, but no, I, I just think of these women going through all this, and I mean, my God, it could be years before you heard from your loved one, you know, depending on what was going on, and uh, you know, if they might be intercepted by the enemy, and oh my goodness. And then finding out that people had died, you know, that you didn't know about until, like, you know, months later. Yeah, it was an incredible time. But these letters are just wonderful. And there's a whole bunch of them. From the early days to, you know, up to she, they died, you know, she died, he died. and then. Well, do you have any ones in particular you want to read? Besides what I had? Uh, let's see. We have about 15 minutes, so. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, let's see. What is this the one? Uh, oh, yeah, this is, this is good. This is in 1781, during the time she's not hearing from him. She goes, my dear brother. I saw an article in our last paper under the London head that Dr. Franklin had paid off all his tradesmen's bills and was preparing to leave Paris to embark on board one of the ships at Brest for America. But as I have heard no such thing any other way, I think it may be rather what they wish and what I should heartily wish if it is consistent with your honor as well as comfort. I am determined to write by this opportunity, by which, if it comes quick to your hands, you may have a ready and safe conveyance to me without the roundabout ways by post from Philadelphia or Boston. It is so long since I had a line from you that if I had not had a former reproof from you, I should be almost ready to conclude on the last of the six chances you then described to me as reasons for not receiving letters that you were tired of corresponding with me and resolved to write no more. It is the year of... The 16th of last March, since I last received from you, was dated, and that was about eight months coming to hand. I think I can recollect seven I have wrote in the time, one by the same vessel. This is to go in Charles Jenkins' master. She's not really, um, you know, her writing is is difficult, and she doesn't always punctuate. So, from Providence, who made so quick a return. Perhaps you had not received time enough to write by him, but I think you must have got that at least. I wrote since by some French gentleman who said he know who he knew you to whom General Green's wife conveyed it for I did not see him and I cannot remember names. I had no remembrance how I came by the piece of the Whig sermon. I inquired of all I thought 
like to have such a thing, but found we are no sermonizers in this part of the country. I then sent it to Cousin Williams to search the printer shops, but he says it was not to be found, and he carried it home and left it with his wife or daughters, and they have lost it, which I do not so much wonder at in the bustle of marrying one of the young ladies for such a circumstance generally takes the attention of all the family. But I am sorry, for I sent to uh, Desi or them... I sent to, so I, I don't understand what that word is, then to try Dr. Cooper, Mr. Lothrop, or Mr. Stillman, and if I was there, I don't doubt I could find it by what I remember of it, but not correct enough to write. I have heard nothing of my niece or her family at Philadelphia a long time, and know but little how the world goes except seeing a newspaper sometimes, which c- contains enough to give pain, but little satisfaction while we are in arms against each other. Parson O'Dell has been exercising his poetical talent on your invention of the chamber fireplace and came to me through the hands of crassy, hairy Badcock, and I have half a mind to send it to you as I think it would make you laugh. But if you should be coming home, it will serve to divert you here. I continue very easy and happily here, have no more to trouble me than what is an incident to human nature and can't be avoided in any place. I write now in my own little chamber, the window opening on one of the pleasantest prospects in the country, the birds singing about me, and nobody up in the house near me to disturb me. You will readily conclude from these circumstances I might have performed better, but I have lost my faculty if ever I had any, and my dear brother will accept sincerity in lieu of it from his ever-affectionate sister. My grandson and daughter have desired me to present their duty. I want very much to hear all about Temple and Benny. Pray present my love to them. Jane Meekum. I mean, they just have been wonderful, you know? (laughs) Um, So, it's, uh, let's see. Um, well, you know, when she was 11 years old, okay, yeah. they, she ran away. So, But that means that they must have established a really strong bond between those few years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they wrote to each other a lot. I mean, she did learn. She was one of the better educated um, for some reason. She, whether it was, you know, she chose to really, you know, learn it as best as uh um as best as can be. Um yeah, she was certainly better than her other sisters and uh Deborah. But um I mean she, in fact in a lot of her letters she, she does talk about, you know, that you know, 'cause he wrote so well and she didn't write so well, but um Yeah, I mean, he he did. He 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 kept her. He he helped her as much as possible. And he and when he was writing to her, especially in the the seventies, you know, the late later part of the seventies when the war was going on, he he uh, did his best, no matter where he was, to uh, keep her or in comfort. You know, she. Um, was always asking about her, you know, her situation and what he could get her for her and and everything. Um, let's 
see. And in his le- oops, oh, shoot, his letters to her were were so cute. Um, let me find one. Two, 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 two. From no, let's see. Let's get a little older. Like, well, this is from 1743. So they were busy. He he was busy doing his printer thing and, and his uh, other things, and she was busy raising the family, her family. So. Uh, so this is July 1743 from Benjamin to Jane. He goes, Dear Sister Jenny, I took your admonition very kindly and was far from being offended at you for it. If I say anything about it to you, tis only to rectify some wrong opinions you seem to have entertained of me, and that I do only because they give you some uneasiness, which I am unwilling to be the occasion of. You express yourself as if you thought I was against worshipping of God and believed good works would remerit heaven, which are both fancies of your own, I think, without foundation. I am so far from thinking that God is not to be worshipped that I have composed and wrote a whole book of devotions for my own use, and I imagine there are few, if any, in the world so weak as to imagine that the little good we can do here can merit so vast a reward hereafter. There are some things in your New England doctrines and worship which I do not agree with, but I do not therefore condemn them or desire to shake your belief or practice of them. We may dislike things that are nevertheless right in themselves. I would only have you make me the same allowances and have a better opinion both of morality and your brother. Read the pages of Mr. Edwards' late book entitled Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England from 367 to 375, and when you judge of others, if you can perceive the fruit to be good, don't terrify yourself that the tree may be evil, but be assured it is not so, for you know who has said men do not gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. I have not time to add, but that I shall always be your affectionate brother. P.S. It is not kind in you to imagine when your sister commended good work she intended it as a reproach to you. It was very far from her thoughts. <laughs> so they're having a little religious tiff, you know. <laughs> oh, uh, I you know I feel bad, you know. Like, did Benjamin know and Jane know that we would be reading their letters two hundred some odd years later? I mean, <laughs> well, and look, in all fairness, think about this. Do we think that 100 or 200 years from now someone is going to be listening to the show? I hope so, and I hope they're on a ship that's out in space. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an American on board, <laughs> and he's talking to some weird other person from another place or planet. And Well, let's, let me tell you about the founders. <laughs> the women. The women. Well, we're coming to the end, and before we leave, we were talking about different places that you could go to educate yourself. Uh, One of them, uh, David mentions the Avalon Project. Uh, Also, go to World Builder's website. They have fantastic historical. um, I've listened to them uh, this weekend, and they they just blow me away. (laughs) They are so knowledgeable. And they put everything into, and if you're a Christian, you're going to love it. Although he gets attacked by Christians quite frequently, Dad, because he's doing pure, 
too pure thought, not this new lovey-dovey, all-inclusive, you know, malarkey. If you want, I'm going to say that word too because of our idiot vice president. Um, but they have their, they have a really good website. They have a lot of good items in there that you could buy to educate yourself or your children or your grandchildren. But also go to PatriotsPub.us. PatriotsPub.us. It is completely free. It is about the convention, day by day. In the founders' words, done by three self-taught historians. One of being my husband. Another one being. Uh, um, Oh my goodness! I keep saying I keep thinking Loki instead of <laughs> Jim Carlin, who uh, helped. Uh, he's a poor deceased friend. He helped get Deb and I together, and actually was inspiration for this show. They do the convention day by day in the founding fathers' words: no hidden agenda, no politics at all. They are not allowed to even breathe or mention anything that has to do with today. With today, it is truly historical, go, because knowledge is the only thing we have left, folks. And with that, I always let Deb take us out. All righty. We're in a a very tumultuous period of time ourselves, and as the mother of a soldier and the mother-in-law of a vet, of course, I always point you to... uh, the uh, idiocy that has taken over the military and the criminality of the uh, government towards our veterans who can, you know, the the VA can spend a lot of money on art and sculpture and let our veterans die. So please remind your congressmen and your senators and your local uh, legislators that our veterans should be They should have the dignity allotted to them, and they should be given the services that were promised them. And um, we still have our our kids in uniforms over in dangerous places, so pray for them and and the families waiting for them to come home. And hopefully some sort of reasoning will take hold of people who are supposed to be the ones leading us uh and 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 just god bless our country um i mean it, this this is this is an interesting time that we live in and so keep fighting keep your powder dry and as always we miss you loki and oh good night sweetie and we'll we'll be here next week and we're glad to stop by and hope you enjoyed the show and uh that's uh it's for tonight. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.